turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Open your Bibles, Bibles in the back. Uh, some of you have your tablets and iPhones and stuff of that nature. Again, try to stay off Twitter and Instagram, that would be good. As we look into Luke chapter 10. We're walking with Jesus through this gospel account as he's proclaiming the gospel. The king has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here, repent, believe the gospel. The king of the kingdom has come, he inaugurated his kingdom. We've seen over and over this question, who is this Jesus? Uh, leaders have asked, the apostles asked, who's this one who forgives sins? Who's this one who, who uh, the, the wind and the sea and the waves obey him? And Jesus himself declared to be the eternal Son of God, the Son of God of the same nature. It was something that also Peter proclaimed. And he's demonstrating his kingly authority, his power as the God-man, truly God and truly man, healing the sick, we saw, cleansing the defiled, raising the dead. And all through his teaching and preaching as he's going from city to city, town to town, He's calling people to repent, to follow him, to turn from their sins, and to be a disciple, to walk with him. And that's what he's doing today. So we make no qualms about it. We're letting you know our church is all about calling people to repent of being their own Lord, justifying their own selves, and to turn from that and to follow and walk with Jesus, who forgives sins and heals and empowers us to walk and to follow him. We've seen the number of disciples are growing. The opposition is growing. Jesus has already named 12 apostles, given him authority and power um, uh, over demons and to heal. He's preparing them to form this new community, leaders to take the mission of redemption to the world. Last week we saw that the mission itself was um, uh, not, just for the 70, not just for the 12, but for 72. And that really is pointing to everyone is called to be a follower. Maybe not everyone's elite churches, but we are all called to be followers and to be disciples. Uh, we are called to join him, to follow him. Matthew 28, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them to obey or to observe all that he has commanded them. So teach, excuse me, be a disciple, come to Christ by faith through grace, and then baptize and then learn what it means to follow and obey him. That's the order. We'll see that today as well. And he's teaching us, he's been teaching his disciples, he's been teaching them, he's teaching us what it looks like to follow him, what it means to love your enemies, uh, not to judge falsely, to build your house on the rock. By the time we get to chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus headed toward Jerusalem, 951, closing the first section. When the days drew near for him, that Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The time is near, and Jesus now is pressing in and, and, and really um, revving it up to teach the disciples what it means, again, to be a disciple, to follow him. Now, after they argued about who's the greatest, chapter 9, verse 46, Jesus sends his disciples into a hostile region from Galilee south to Samaria. We saw that. Um, it was then that the Samarians reject Jesus because he was headed to Jerusalem. And we know that James and John, who are known for a nickname, Son of Thunder, and love and just humility wanted to barbecue the Samaritans. Chapter 9, verse 54. Lord, they rejected us, so let us call down fire from heaven and consume them. Vengeance, now. Jesus rebuked them. And then Jesus teaches us in chapter 9, 57 through 62, about the cost of discipleship. 
just pressing the truth home. We said, sum it up with one word, priority. Priority. It takes priority, and it takes mission. He sends the 72 out in chapter 10, verse 1. To, to demonstrate and, and to declare the gospel. And they go out on this mission tour where they've called to do what it means to follow Jesus. They're going into these cities declaring the gospel, declaring that Christ has come, demonstrating it with healings and, and healing and, and taking authority over demons. And when they come back, they're so happy. Man, it was great. And remember, Jesus says, oh, whoa, okay, okay. What you really need to rejoice in ultimately is that your names are written in heaven. You remember that? Your names are written in heaven, chapter 9, verse 20. In fact, Jesus, we ended last week, rejoicing in the Holy Spirit himself over the revelation of the work of salvation, chapter 10, verse 21, in the same hour that they said, that Jesus said, don't rejoice in the mission itself, rejoice that your salvation is secure. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things, these gospel truths, name written in heaven, from the wise and understanding. They're not getting it, but you reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, rejoicing over the sovereignty of God in salvation, rejoicing over the, the Father's gracious revelation that he gave to these children, yet hid them from the wise and understanding. Gave it to them children, humble Folks who acknowledge inadequacies, who, who cannot save themselves, the people who have come to Christ with a childlike faith. And all this was due to the sovereign pleasure of the Father and the Son. Verse 22, he committed all things to him. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father, who the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's that context now that Luke, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's necessary chronological, but Luke puts the story of the Good Samaritan after that text. And the point of the story that we'll read, that, that was read earlier, but we'll look at, is not only to understand who our neighbor is, or even better, are, are we good neighbors? Are we showing God's love and compassion to all people? But, but more importantly, I think, how the gospel is received through humility coming to him in simple childlike faith and how that, that grace and love of the gospel and of a humble heart who receives the grace of God is then put into action, what that looks like. That's what the story's about. Not just who my neighbor is or being a good neighbor, but the humility necessary to receive the grace of God. So we'll look at the Good Samaritan in the three sections. The questions that are being asked is more than one, but they're, they're important. Um, also, we'll see the parable that Jesus gives, and then the humility. I think that Jesus is trying to get this lawyer to see. That's the three points for the two people that take notes. Um, the question. Now, there, there, there are a lot of questions, not a lot, but there are a few questions that's going on in our text. But one thing I want to just say before we look at that is there's a difference between someone asking a question because it's an honest inquiry rather than a, an antagonistic you know, inquiry, right? Question. Right? Some people ask questions, they really want to know the answer. And some people ask questions just simply because they want to be antagonistic. Right? They know everything, can't tell them anything, and here they are asking a question, setting it up. Right? Don't look around, but this happens at times, right? 
This narrative opens with an important insight into the question that this lawyer, who's also known as a scribe, he's an expert in God's law, a Bible thumper, theologian. The question he's going to ask, the Bible reveals his motives. He knows the law of God from the Old Testament. But he asks the question, and, and, and the most important question, but look at the motive. He asked him to test Jesus. So the test, oh, this, is, this is why I'm asking the question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, my money's on God, I'm just saying. Testing God in any aspect of theology doesn't seem that bright to me. Uh, remember, Jesus said earlier, right, he, that the Father has hid this work of salvation, this revelation, this unveiling of salvation. He hid them from who? The wise and understanding. And the question is a, is a great question, and Jesus finds himself getting that question from the wise and understanding. But the question itself is a question that was common in that day. The question itself doesn't just say, it's not just a question, what must I do to go to heaven? It embraces the whole of the Jewish hope that they had in God. It basically is saying, how can I be sure that I participate in and be blessed in the resurrection at the end of the day? Not just how I get to heaven, but the hope of the kingdom. That question really embraces and embodies the hope of the, the restoration, the fulfillment of all the eschatological, the end times promises that God has made to the people of Israel. Very common in that day. And of course the question is not, what must God do? What must God do for us so that we can have eternal life? He says, but well, what must I do? It's about me. What I do to inherit eternal life. Now, before we, you know, throw the, the lawyer under the bus for asking that question, many people today feel the same way and think the same way, don't they? The way into gaining God's favor, the way into gaining hope of eternity is that I'm, I'm really banking on that the stuff that I do that's good will outweigh the things that I do that I know is wrong. That's my hope. Maybe I'll somehow earn God's favor. And although I think there were some in that day that understood that grace was necessary, there are many that hope that in their own achievement, in their own works, in their own moral standings, in their own obedience to whatever standard, whether it be the law or something else, that will gain somehow eternal life for them. But to help the lawyers see that he cannot earn salvation, Jesus responds with a question of his own. He turns a table on him. Brilliant, uh, obviously, coming from God himself, uh, turns the table right around, and the, and the interrogated becomes the interrogator. Like, you're a lawyer, verse 26. What is written in the law? What do you think? What's your interpretation of it? How do you read it? Notice first that Jesus goes straight to the Scripture with that question. He didn't want to know about the man's speculation. He wants to know about God's revelation. What is written in the scripture? What is written in the law? You want eternal life? You want to learn about God? You want to learn and, and see what it means for all the eschatological hopes of the kingdom? What is it written? Not what you think. 
what they say down the street, the new philosophy of the day, he goes straight to the scripture. He's asking the law expert to interpret what the law says about inheriting eternal life. Verse 27, he said, he answered, the lawyer answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And what the lawyer does, because he probably knows that the entire five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the, the, the Torah, probably by heart, or close to it. And what he does, he takes two scriptures from the book of the law, and he puts them together. First in Deuteronomy chapter 4, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. It's called the Shema. It was something the Israelite uh, Jewish people would recite several times a day. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So what the, what the Pharisee, what the, what the scribe and the lawyer is saying is, Loving God involves the heart, the very seat of my emotion, the soul, the man's consciousness, his strength, the, the drive, the motive, and the mind, the intellect. Love him with all of that. The second Old Testament passage this lawyer answers comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord Yahweh. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew, the New Testament. The test of Jesus. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Paul picks it up in Romans 13, said love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't see that one word, but you know what he means, one phrase. The truth is clear, right? If you, if you, you must first love God with all that is in you, and if you do, you will be able to love others as you love yourself. Love for God produces love for people. And let me make this statement, we'll talk a little bit about more, but the way to eternal life in the Old Testament, the way to the eternal life in the New Testament is the same. It is by grace through faith that works itself out as evidence in love. For in Christ, Paul writes, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, Greek or Jew, counts for anything but only faith working through love, showing itself in love. The truth is a love for God and one's neighbor is inconceivable apart from faith and trust in God. Faith that does not produce love toward God, toward one neighbor, is dead faith according to James chapter 2. Dr. Darrell Bach in a great commentary says Jesus' approval of the answer in the next verse comes because, do this and live, comes because at its heart, the answer is an expression of total allegiance and devotion that in other contexts could be called faith, end quote. And then Jesus said, I love this, verse 28. You, good answer. You got it right. Go do it. Do it and you will live. Why? Because the chief end of humankind, of man himself, God's creation, is to glorify God by loving him as our supreme treasure. So that 
All the lawyer has to do and all we have to do, anyone has to do, is go and do that. Simply keep the commandments. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You will inherit eternal life. In fact, the verb that Jesus uses, do this, you will live, is a, is a uh, present imperative in the Greek. and means ongoing. Not a one-time thing like I just did it. Real quick. Two seconds. That's all I got. But to love the Lord our God with our whole being. Love our neighbors with pure sacrificial love. And when Jesus says do this and live, he's not really talking about what one must do. He already said that, but really whether one actually can do it. At this point, the lawyer did not need more knowledge. He knows the scriptures. What he needed was a better understanding of humility. Acknowledgement that, yeah, I can't do that. There's one man that ever lived in all of life in such a wholehearted and, and, a, and a supremely selfless way. And the lawyer's not him. It's the one he's talking to. His name is Jesus. The Paul, the apostle, makes it perfectly in Romans and Galatians. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Why? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, we can never be saved by keeping the law, not because there's anything wrong with the law, but there's something wrong with us. The lawyer wasn't getting it. And it's a good time to remind us that the moral standard of God, according to Scripture, is first and foremost a reflection of who He is, our Creator. And therefore, His moral standard for our lives should not just be dismissed. Right? And, and is bound on all of his creatures. It's not like, well, I'm not a Jew, so therefore I can commit adultery. False teachers today, very bad theology today. Won't name any names. Joseph Prince, Andrew Farley, false teachers. Unhits the Old Testament. You got Andy Stanley, just completely left the universe. Unhits the Old Testament. The law has no effect on Christians ever in any way, shape, or form. One of the ways to combat that is to say this is, the, this is God revealing his nature uh, and, and expectations of his creatures. It's who he is, and we are to reflect that to him. Yes, yeah, true, we're not under the law. We can't attain salvation because we could never live in that perfect law. The law that's required to love the Lord thy God, to love neighbor as thyself. But it's also true that we're not above the law. We're not under the law. Right? We're not under it as if we have to follow it in order to be saved, but we're not over it that we say, you know what, I'll do whatever I want. I will decide what love looks like. I'll decide which way love goes. I'll decide what determines my actions. No, 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 no. We're not under it. We can't get saved by it. We're not over it. We make that decision. What love looks like is in Scripture. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I've mentioned this before. I just love this quote. He says, love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills. Love is what law commands, and the commands are what love fulfills because love requires direction and principles of operation. Love is motivation, but it is not self-interpreting direction. You're not over the law. Commandments are the railroad tracks on which the life empowered by the love of God, by the grace of God, by the love of God, Poured into our hearts by the Spirit runs. Love empowers the engine. Law guides the direction. 
And, and to understand Jesus' answer, do this and live, we must recognize that knowledge of what God requires is not enough. It needs to be put into practice. You could have the right answers. I mean, there's a difference between I know the right answer than I'm actually living it and doing it, right? Jesus' answer should have humbled him. Do this and live. Humbled him enough to recognize I can't. But then Luke adds another telling in Scripture. Look at verse 29 with me. Desiring to justify himself. Testing Jesus, justifying Jesus. Who's my neighbor, Lord? See what the lawyer's doing? The lawyer, excuse me, is seeking to somehow soften this demand that's in the law and not to feel a sense of obligation to respond in order to appear righteous, in order to save face. Well, then who's my neighbor? The teacher of the law was not interested in Jesus being the means of his justification. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be right, to be made right with God on his own merit, by his own performance. So he sought to do what everyone does. Everyone does the same thing that this lawyer is doing when it comes to a works-based religion. Do this, go there, visit this, these five pillars, the same thing. They try to lower their standards, to lower God's standards to a place where it's achievable by human effort. I could do that. I can go here. I'll follow those things. I can do that. That's the, that's the lowering rather than saying, love God with everything. Love your neighbors completely. So in this guy's mind, there's neighbors and there are non-neighbors. <laughs> the lawyer's looking for this, this minimum requirement of what it means to love God and love especially the neighbor. Some loophole. But Jesus requires total obedience. You see, the common interpretation of Leviticus 19, that's what this is honed in on, too. Part of it, anyway. Verse 19, Leviticus 19, where it says, um, you shall not take vengeance, you don't hold grudges against the sons of your own people. Then it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What the interpretation of that passage was, we are to love the neighbor. It means my own tribe, my own people. So God, when the, when the word in Leviticus says, you know, don't hold grudge against your sons, but love your neighbor, that means just within Israel. You only read about 10 verses later in Leviticus, and you read this in the law. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember, Jesus taught about loving your, your enemies. So this lawyer loving one's neighbors meant uh, some people counted, some people were considered my neighbor, and that there was this group of people that were not my neighbor. Take care of my own. Don't have any obligation for anyone else that's not in my tribe. And before we judge, let's relate, right? What? Or who, or what kind of peoples, what, what kind of people groups do you decide are outside your obligation to love? Don't answer that question out loud. Social differences, political differences, ethnic differences, or maybe certain types of people that you would just rather really ignore than to love. The question reveals a lot. Look at the parable. 
In order to justify himself, he says, who's your neighbor? Now, as Jesus gives this parable, it's very important to understand the Samaritan people. We talked a little about a few weeks ago. Not, they were, in their eyes, not very good people, right? Uh, there was hatred and disdain toward the Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds, traitors of the true covenant people of Israel. Hostility went back 400 years when the, during the Babylonian captivity. The Samaritan people settled in with the, with the Babylonians, the Assyrians, excuse me, and they intermarried. So they were half-breeds, and they were disdained. Compromising dogs, they would be called. And the Samaritans weren't impressed with the Jewish people either. They, they set up their own rival temple in the uh, Mount Gerizim. So this so-called hero of the story does have this twist to it. We're not liked at all. Culturally, they were the last person that uh, a, a, a scribe or a Pharisee or religious leader that they wanted to hear was this model of neighborliness. Okay? The story begins with a common, Jesus takes a common occurrence, of, um, says this parable. 17-mile journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, although Jerusalem was south of Jericho, it talks about going down because Jerusalem was high up and it was way down into Jericho. That's the way they did, not necessarily north and south, but up and down. The rocky road, narrow road, lined with caves, all kinds of places to hide. Bandits would be there, robbers would be there as a regular occurrence notoriously dangerous. Uh, you want to walk there at night. There's places that we don't like. You know what? I'm not going there. Uh, not by myself. Um, that, that was that kind of place. They called it the bloody way. <laughs> that's, a, that's a name. Hey, you want to go on the bloody way? Yeah, no, I think I'll skip that. But the, the road uh, not only winds through rocky uh, desert uh, terrain, but it descends 3,600 feet down the 17-mile road down 1,300 feet below sea level in Jericho. And one of the things that I find interesting, I hope you do too as well, is it doesn't say what, who this man is. Look at the text. He says, a man, verse 30, a man was going down. Smart, dumb, um, Jew, Greek, gen- I mean, there's no description of this, a man. I think Jesus did that on purpose. I mean, you could think, okay, maybe it was a Jewish man because you're talking to it. No, but it, does, it just says a man. He doesn't mention anything about him, no description. Why? Because that's not the point. The point is the one who responds to the man. It, it, it kind of takes that aspect out of the story. As he's going, it says he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed leaving him half dead. Not a good day for that traveler. As he laid there, it just so happened, just so happened, that a priest was going down the road. He saw him, half dead, beaten, walked on the other side. Far away as I could possibly get from the man. And the second man, verse 32, was a Levite. Did the same thing. Walked around the man on the road. Now, where are they coming from? Jerusalem. No doubt in my mind, as Jesus is telling this story to a scribe about coming from Jerusalem, that these men were there doing what they were called to do, and that is to serve the Lord in the temple. No doubt in my mind. 
ministering. Priests were the ones offering sacrifices. Levites were the ones who were taking care of and assisting the priests, preparing the sacrifice, uh, cleansing and caring for the sacred courts and the vessels that were going on. These two men were coming from Jerusalem, heading to Jericho, which, by the way, was a... I read somewhere this week that it was the number one place where the priest who didn't live in Jerusalem would live. They would, they would go to Jericho. That's where they lived. That's where their property was. That's where their home was. They're headed back from doing what God called them to do. Unfortunately, many times religious people, those self-righteous people, when I say religious people, I mean the self-righteous, I'm good, you're not. Look how great I am, you're not. Those self-righteous people lack compassion on those that are not like them. Ouch. Sin of omission. The failure of doing what one should do. They have been over the years many excuses like, why would they do that? What is Jesus trying to say? Maybe the, maybe the priest and the Levites did not want to touch a dead body that would defile them. Maybe that's the reason. Or maybe they were just trying to get home. They haven't been home in, I don't know, a couple of months. They wanted to get home. Or maybe they didn't want to get ambushed themselves. And these commentators, some of the commentators, are, I'm like, that's not the point. The point is there's no excuse. That's the point. To walk past a, def- a body that was beaten and left for dead. It reminds me of Jesus' word in Matthew 21. He's quoting from Isaiah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Clearly the higher calling was to save a man's life. And that took precedent over some ceremonial law. The man had a righteous responsibility to stop and help, but they failed. They simply passed, passed the, the half-dead man as if, you know, pretending there was... He was not even there. So the reality is, here they go from reciting the law, working in the temple, doing the things that they do in a religious sense, of ceremonial religious sense, and yet, what they, they fail to keep the law of God to love him and to love your neighbor. And I think a good question at this point is, you know, what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor am I? Right? Are, 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 are we quick to help people in need? I know it's, it, we need wisdom to do that. Some people I know could take advantage and actually could hurt them. But are we quick? Are we quick to stop? Are we quick to look to help people in need? Are we quick to serve others? Are, or are we making excuses to walk past them? Because we don't have the time of day. We don't have the compassion that's necessary. The story continues, verse 33. But a Samaritan, Jesus talking, as he journeyed, came to where the beaten man laying bloody was. And when he saw him, and you could almost, you could almost hear inside the head of this lawyer at this moment. You could almost hear him saying, please, don't tell me, Jesus, this half breed, least accepted, least respected, unclean is going to help him. Like you could, you could almost see him talking to himself when he said like, oh, the Samaritan stopped. He went to where he was like, oh, don't say it. <laughs> and Jesus goes, yeah, I'm going to say it. He had compassion on him. The Samaritan was the last one, last person the lawyer would expect to be this climatic figure of this story. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Next day, gave him two denarii to the innkeeper, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay. 
when I come back. Verses 33 and following. Even the amount of words, like the Levite and the priest saw him, walked away. Levite saw him, walked away. Priest saw him, walked away. And now the Samaritan, we got like, you know, all these words to describe all the things he's done. It's almost as if, you know, sticking a hot poker in the lawyer's eye. Like, this is what the Samaritan did. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. Remember, James and John, not long ago, let's call fire down. Let's, let's barbecue the Samaritans. The essence of being a neighbor is simply having the compassion to see a need and to act, and if you can, meet that need. Jesus has been teaching his disciples about loving your enemies, loving people, expressing that love, and now he's showing them. He's not just saying who my neighbor is, but he's, he's giving them a, a teaching on what it means to love. So not only is the lawyer being instructed, but the disciples are being taught how to lovingly respond to a Samaritan, not by calling fire, how to lovingly respond to your neighbor, how to lovingly respond to your enemies. Notice the six concrete, compassionate action that Jesus says this Samaritan did. He, he actually stops, he says, and he approaches the man. Everybody else walked away. He binds the wounds. Three, he anoints the cuts with oil and wine. Oil soothed the, wine, uh, soothed the wound, the wine disinfected it. He took what his own, his own sustenance, the things that he had for his own journey, and he, and he gave it to this man. Then he loads him, number four, on a mule, which means he probably walked the rest of the way. Then he takes him to the inn, number five, to a place where he could be, get, get care. And six, he gives him more money. Provide more continued comfort and care to this man that he just met. Now, when I read this week, there was enough, that those two coins he gave him was enough for three weeks of care in an inn. Three weeks in a hotel. Who's a good neighbor? He or she who has compassion, sees people in need, people who suffer, who not only feel bad, but they take actions even when it's inconvenient. That's a good neighbor. And a good neighbor's help, Jesus is making it clear, good neighbors help people without prejudice. Loving people that are not your own tribe. A good neighbor makes costly sacrifices of time and money to serve people in trouble. C.J. Ryle, the kindness of a Christian toward others should be a practical love. A love which entails on him self-sacrifice, self-denial, both in money and time and in trouble. His charity should be seen not merely in his talking, but his acting, not merely in his profession, but in his practice, end quote. Jesus is pointing out that everyone is our neighbor. Everyone created in the imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God, that we come across when we're able, if we can, to humbly serve and care and have compassion on people. But the lawyer, like the rest of us, when we hear the requirements of, eternal, uh, of attaining eternal life, should fall down out in our faces and say, I hear your parable, I, I, I heard you say go and do, but you know what, I, I have not done that. I can't do that. It's like the man who said, Lord, I, I, today I have not sinned, hated, had evil thoughts, or did anything to offend anyone, but in just a second I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to need your help. <laughs> the questions, the parable, and now the humility, verse 36. Simple question. Anybody can answer. 
think? These three people, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. Obvious answer, the one who showed mercy. But the answer from the lawyer should have said, the one who shows mercy, but thank you for instructing me <laughs> about my neighbor is, who my neighbor is and how we are to be good neighbors when we go and do likewise. But I realize now I can't keep those commandments. I have prejudice in my heart. I can't love God perfectly and continuously. I have not, and to love my neighbor unconditionally and indiscriminately. Thank you for showing me that my neighbors are not determined by race, creed, or, or discriminating class. My neighbors are those in genuine need in the image and likeness of God. Thank you. I, I really need to work on that. That's not what he said. This was a call to the lawyer not to abandon the moral standard. Like, that's ridiculous. That's not what the law says. I'm not doing that. I can't do that. I don't need to love a Samaritan. No, the law reveals what pleases God. And a child of God, a born-again uh, child of God, those who have been regenerated by the gospel, the law enlightens us to show us what we are to do. We've said that. And therefore, as Christians, and we'll get to, the, get to why in a moment, we are like King David, who delights in the law of God as God himself delights in the law. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The highest function of the moral standard of God is to serve as an instrument of God's people to give him honor, glory, and praise. Ligonier Reformation Bible says this, the moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding upon, binding upon us. Our redemption is from the curse of God's law, not from our duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. Justified in order to be obedient, not to gain justification. He says to love Christ is to keep his commandments. To love God is to obey his law, end quote. Here's what the scriptures teach and what the lawyer is supposed to see, that God is holy, God is perfect, God's law is righteous. It's a reflection of who he is. It is a road to which we walk. But the truth is we are sinners and we want to live in our own ways as our own Lord and justify ourselves. But we fall immensely short of the glory and the praise and perfection of God. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment. We deserve it for our rebellion. But in God, in his mercy and grace and his rich love toward us, sent his son to live that perfect life that we could never live, then die an atoning sacrifice for our sins, for the law violators that we are, and paying the penalty by absorbing the wrath we deserve. And by faith in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. By faith in Christ, he gives us and imputes to our account his own righteousness. But also the gospel teaches us that we are also receive his Holy Spirit, regenerated us, awakens us from, from the dead and, and rebellious heart that we once had. In fact, Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about the new covenant. They said this, the new covenant will be a time when I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my stature and be careful to obey my rules. 
Therefore, a gospel perspective of the moral law in light of the new covenant, in light of the grace of God toward us in the gospel is that we have received from God a new heart by which he puts his law on our minds, his law on our hearts, and empowers us to live so that we could say with King David, the Lord, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. And then he says, more to be desired. The law is more to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of honeycomb. The Apostle John, 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And what? His commandments are not burdensome. The reason that David and John delighted in the law is because they first understood grace. So the gospel teaches us that God went from putting his law on stone tablets but putting them now in the heart and mind of all the believers. So now there's this inner disposition and desire that both delights in knowing his law and doing his will. And it's only through the new birth can one truly delight in God's law. The psalmist says his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. So what are we to say about this parable? And Jesus' word to this lawyer, you go, you got it right. You go and, and do likewise. Go and obey the law of love by acts of compassion and service. What it's supposed to reveal to him and to us is the need for forgiveness. The need to humble ourselves. The need for a new heart. New empowerment. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is not saying one can merit the mercy of God by performing acts of mercy, but rather those who are truly God's children, who are objects of his mercy, will themselves be merciful. That's the point. And the failure of keeping the law should humble us and show us our deep need for the gospel. Can I show you something? Jesus asked the question, which one of these, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which one of them proved to be a neighbor? Notice the text. The lawyer didn't say the Samaritan. Notice. The one who showed his mercy. Couldn't even get to say the man's name out loud. The lawyer may have had the wrong idea about his neighbor, but he understood what neighborliness was. Yet because his deep-seated prejudice, he cannot bring himself to say, it was the Samaritan, Jesus. The cry of the heart should be, I know the standard to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others in like manner, but I can't. It'll take the gospel. When we see the beauty and the glory and the infinite worth of Christ and rest solely on his grace for our failure and forgiveness, he will give us new life and heart motivated by gratitude and love because God has been gracious and kind and loving toward us. Then we will love others. It will come from the outpouring of his grace, not a means of getting grace. And as children of God, our relationship with others validate or invalidate our claims to know God and to love others. Are we loving others? Is the grace of God, is the Holy Spirit working in our hearts that we are living that way? It's evidence of the free gift of salvation. Not a call to be perfect. Nobody is. 
And we have forgiveness of sins, therefore we can be radically, radically gracious because we are forgiven when we fail. We get up and we do it again, knowing that we're loved and forgiven and empowered. Only one has ever lived, I said, selflessly and perfectly, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving others by the neighbors, uh, loving a neighbor like himself, and that's Jesus who was consistently merciful to everyone. But this appeal, I think this story, is to reflect and teach us, are we merciful? Are we humble? Are we compassionate? Are we representing? Are we living the life of Christ living in us? Are we living it out? That's the point. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And the question, therefore, the parable of Jesus to show the lawyer, to show us we are in our own strength, cannot follow the two great commands. The command's not the problem. Paul said that that the law is holy and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. The problem is we're not. So, the question the lawyer should be asking is this. As Jesus finishes his parable and Jesus says, go and do likewise. He's maybe should be thinking, maybe you're thinking this way. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I don't really want to depend on my obedience to some law in order to inherit eternal life. Maybe that's not what I should be hoping in. Or maybe I should admit that I cannot earn eternal life through some religious ritual or some moral standard. Maybe I shouldn't be interested in justifying myself but looking to someone else, an alien righteousness and justification in my place. This parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that we need the love that God has for us in the gospel. And family, here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. In that gospel truth, God poured out his love and grace to the cold-hearted lawbreakers that we are. The ones who aren't good to neighbors. The truth is we bear more resemblance. Listen, two more minutes. We bear more resemblance to the helpless man dying by the side of the road than we do at times in the Samaritan. Unless someone comes and rescues me, rescues us, with sacrificial neighbor love, we will perish. We're in desperate need of someone to love us even in our sin-soaked, sin-sick condition. Jesus is the true Good Samaritan who came to us while we were still dead in our sins, an enemy of God. He met us when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. He fulfilled the law requirements, paying the price for the lawbreakers that we are so that our souls can be healed, that our wounds and brokenness and sins can be forgiven. Family, the truth is the love and mercy that God and the Lord Jesus Christ has showed us in the gospel is infinitely greater than that of the Samaritan. For he came to bind and to cleanse our wounds of sins. He came to us not when we were beaten, left head, half dead, or left for dead, or as the movie says, mostly dead. We were all the way dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus not simply crossed the road, but stepped out of heaven's glory. To redeem us. And as gracious and kind and merciful and compassionate it was for the Samaritan to take out of his own means to bring healing and restoration to this man, the cost of Christ, 
the insults, the rejections, and the suffering of the bloody cross. And the agonies of the soul on the cross when his father turned his back. And Jesus cried out, why hast thou forsaken me? David Gooding, we were not his neighbors, nor he ours, but he chose by incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that human beings hounded him to a cross, he rescued us at his own expense and has paid in advance the cost of completing our redemption and of perfecting us for imaginable glory, end quote. So as the band comes up, let me ask this question or make this statement. Family, it is only by grace alone through faith alone to the humble who would acknowledge that they can't justify themselves alone that you can inherit eternal life. A heart that has been touched by the unmerited love of God will be moved to show that love to others who don't deserve it. So Jesus says, I have loved you. I died for you. I took the wrath you deserve. I lived the perfect life for you in your place. Taking the Father's wrath upon myself. I was hated, rejected, and crucified and buried. Bearing the penalty and the weight of sin. And then I rose from the grave. I have loved you. Go and do likewise. Let us pray. Father, I think that this passage, this narrative, would stir our hearts in, in different directions, I think. So God, I would pray that you, by your Spirit, would allow us to hear clearly from you that salvation is a gift. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that free gift, as Jesus said, has been given to us, and the call is to follow you in all the priorities of life take second place but you. Father, help us to, out of the gratitude and love of the gospel, show love and gratitude and graciousness, I should say, to others as well. That we may go, not in order to attain salvation, but because we have been given salvation as a gift. And therefore, your commands are not burdensome to us, but your standard of how we ought to live is something we strive to do. And when we fail, we're forgiven. And we need to press on, loving you and loving others, because you have loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen.